Hello, I'm Brittany Wilson. I'm Nia Wasink, and you're listening to The, the Nonprofit, Nonprofit Reframe. Together, Nia and I have over 30 years of nonprofit experience. We've worked the program side, the business side, and everything in between. We are reframing the nonprofit experience by challenging the status quo because we know that nonprofits and their staff are undervalued, under resourced, and unrelenting. Welcome back to the Nonprofit Reframe. Happy Monday. We are recording this on Monday, June 22nd, so this is pretty significantly in advance. And it's also Voo Day. It's Voo Day, yes. We dropped our episode with Voo today. I hope you all enjoyed it as much as we did. Yes. I also hope that this episode we're recording right now has relevance in a month when we release it. And if it doesn't, we blame you for taking a vacation. (laughs) I am setting my boundaries, Nia. I am taking my time off. I am decompressing. Yeah, whatever. (laughs) So salty in my jealousy. How was your weekend? It was nice. I uh, learned how to make homemade ice cream. Um. You know I love all things Americana, and homemade <laughs> ice cream is right up there. So I'm a huge fan. Uh, I did it with strawberries from our garden. Oh, So delicious. just like double whammy there. And it really, it, I mean, it's, it's next level. It really is that much better. I couldn't believe it. I'm, I, I don't know. It surprises me, or I just find it intriguing that your first foray into homemade ice cream and you would jump straight to a flavor that you didn't try to go just with the OG vanilla. Oh, uh, boring. Oh, it's Why so delicious. Why waste time? It's so delicious. Well, I was also doing it because we had so many strawberries that I wanted to find something to do with them. So, nice. dual purpose. Nice. How was your weekend? It was pretty good. Um... My kids started horse camp this week. A week without your children at home while you try to work from home? I know. I don't even know what that's like. Oh my gosh. It's going to be amazing. Well, I, so this was kind of interesting. I was dropping them off today and of course there's all of these, uh, COVID protocols and the groups are really small and, um, you know, strict instructions about what to do during drop off and. Um, My little one is five. She's going to be six in August. And she got really nervous as I was getting ready to leave. And she's pretty outgoing. And not that I wouldn't expect her to get nervous, but she just seemed a little bit more than usual. And I realized, well, man, since we've been in quarantine, she hasn't been in a group setting in, what, four months? Yeah. Whoa. I mean, normally she would be at school every day and going to aftercare and play dates at friends' house and birthday parties and all this sort of stuff. And so it made me just wonder what this quarantine is going to be like, what the effect it's going to have on all of our kids with socializing. I had such a similar conversation with a friend of mine this weekend um, because her daughter has developed all of these new fears. And I was like, well, yeah, because she has been attached to your hip since mid-March. She hasn't had to 
to calm herself at all, right? She hasn't right. been in a school setting where she's had to like regulate herself. She's got mom. So yeah, what what is this going to do to our kids long term? Holy shit. Well, I know in my other daughter who tends to have a little bit more anxiety, this has been, I mean, she's living her best life because <laughs> she's not in group settings and doesn't have to deal with the stressors of peer-to-peer relationships, mm-hmm. you know? But even still, she's kind of being lulled into a false sense of security because eventually she's going to have to go back out into the public. Is this going to be the generation that never leaves their parents' basements? Well, according to my youngest, she's already made that claim at five. She's with me for life. (laughs) Good luck to you. Yeah. (laughs) So anyways, yeah, I think... I'm I'm loving all the family time and being there, you know, for a lot of moments that we normally miss out on. But um, I can't help but think, you know, kind of what's going to be the cost for that. Yeah, absolutely. Long term. Mm-hmm. So, what are we talking about today? Well, um, I was listening to a podcast last week, as I do. I don't just listen to ours. I listen to a Shocker. number of other ones. Um. <laughs> And it was great because it was a um, a non nonprofit podcast talking about nonprofits, and I love it when that happens. I love oh. it when we are like not relegated to our special back room of operations, but you know people can actually talk about it. Um, and so they were talking about how um, it was. Well, so it's an economics podcast called Planet Money because I'm a super nerd. Don't know if you knew that. Um, and they were talking about. What we love about you. (laughs) Nerds are cool. How, um, you know, people are, have been very generous as of late. You know, we had that initial like influx of people giving when COVID hit. And then, um, with Black Lives Matter, we've had another round of just really significant philanthropy. The problem is some of these funds are going to really small nonprofits who do not have the capacity to, utilize them, quite frankly. And then the cherry on top is this morning's blog post from Voulet talked about the same thing. That's crazy. So I know it was just like such a confluence of information on this topic that I felt like we needed to add our voice to the mix. So what you're talking about is when um, something happens in the media or within the world that then sparks kind of this burst of interest and donations flood into one organization and, or if, as we've seen before in the past, um, you know, every time it's like that lightning in a bottle where they find a campaign that just goes viral, you know, everybody here, Mm -hmm. I think can remember the ice bucket challenge a few years ago. And how that just went completely viral and everybody was doing it and sending money. And so ALS got a ton of donations. Mm -hmm. And they had to shift so much of what they were doing because they suddenly had so much more money coming in. And I I think that's an important distinction, right? There are some organizations that are set up for that, like the American Red Cross. When there's a disaster, they're going to be there to respond. And they also have the donation infrastructure to take that money in turn it around into direct services. But a lot of organizations don't have that. So ALS, I mean, that went so much more viral than they ever anticipated. I've heard some um, some 
interviews with like the staff at that time who were like, holy shit, (laughs) you know, we, we just, we wanted to raise awareness, maybe a little bit, bit of money. And then boom, we've got millions of dollars coming in. And so they had to grapple with it, but we're seeing it right now, especially where we've seen such a push to fund, um, organizations run by people of color, which we know historically are underfunded. They get what, like 8% of total foundation giving. So of course they're going to be smaller organizations. Right. And then boom, we have this wave of philanthropy pushing money into them. Which I'm so glad we're talking about this because I can't tell you how many times I have sat in a fundraising strategy meeting at any number of the organizations that I've worked at. And there has been a conversation around, you know, if we could just come up with a campaign like the Ice Bucket Challenge that would go viral. Oh my God, right? It's usually, that's usually what comes up right after someone says, if we could just get in touch with Oprah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Same person, same breath, typically. Uh But this is such a great point that while, yes, it sounds like, well, of course, who wouldn't want millions of dollars to fund their mission? And yet, let's take a deeper look at some of the challenges that come with that. Mm-hmm. Well, so the podcast I listened to specifically talked about the Brooklyn Community Bail Fund. Um, and they interviewed, I think, the executive director of that organization. So they um, they provide support and and bail funds for like the protesters who were arrested in Brooklyn um, during the Black Lives Matter um, protests. And what they did was pretty interesting. So they had a massive, overwhelming amount of donations, and they finally said, stop, give elsewhere. And they gave a list of other nonprofits who who are kind of in that space. But I, I really appreciated that they, at least in the podcast, he specifically said, They've been doing this work and needed our help for a long time, and you can finally step up and give to them. Mm-hmm. That's great. Well, I love that they, and we've talked about that before, right? Um, mm-hmm. About how, <clears throat> excuse me, as a sector, we need to not be so scared to say, hey, wait a minute, why don't you support our sister and brother organizations as well? Right. And so I love that they brought that up, and, and that's something that they did. Um, I wonder if even then they were scared to do it. You know, oh, here they sure. have millions and millions of dollars and they don't necessarily know what they're going to do with it just yet. And yet saying, hey, why don't you give elsewhere? I'm sure goes against everything that has been ingrained in them as fundraisers. Well, yeah, I'm sure we even have like some fundraisers listening right now who are like, oh, no, we we could use that money. Right. We'll figure it out. <laughs> right. But then right. that actually brings us to our second example, which... Um, Vu talked about, but there's also a Vox article that I was reading, um, and I'll drop that in the show notes so that folks can see it. So the organization is the Minnesota Freedom Fund, and they received like literally over $30 million overnight. Holy cow. Yeah. I mean, it was a huge amount of money. And in the first two weeks since the money was raised, they've only been able to use 200,000 of it. And now all these folks are taking to the internet to be like, you're not using my money well. Like, what's happening? Why aren't you doing it? And that that's really what Vu talks about in his article, too, is, um, you know, the kind of uh, expectations we have of nonprofits. But, like, that is right. such a real issue. I mean, can you imagine being a small nonprofit where you have suddenly raised, you know, an exponential amount of your annual budget overnight? You 
nobody has plans for how to deal with that. <laughs> no, in two weeks. Come on. What is that, a fortnight? Yeah. I mean, you're going to have to staff up, right? You're going to have to do so many things that can't happen in two weeks. No, that's such a short amount of time, um, specifically in nonprofit time. And I'm sure there's just a bunch of, hey, okay, we need to kind of reset and reground and, you know, take stock of everything that's happened first before we make any big decisions on where we're putting this money. Right. Well, and I think, you know, what we've talked, especially recently, a lot about like all of the different scenario plannings that we've gone through and the 13 different budgets that we project out. And, um, you know, often in strategic planning, you even have like, okay, here's our stretch idea. You know, if all the things go well and all the dominoes fall into place, here's what we could do. No, nobody's expecting $35 million to be in play. And so, like, trying to get your board even to wrap their head around what yeah, that would look like. Yeah, that's one hell of a finance committee meeting. Can you imagine? Like, so we've... <laughs> so, um, hey, we brought another budget to the table, just so you know. And this one, you'll see, is for $35 million. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the thing. I mean, there's a process. There's an internal process on making those decisions. Right. And it's not one person, nor should it right. be. And so it's got to go through all the channels as well before any decision can be made. Right. And and I'm certainly not going to say, like, one organization was right or wrong. Like the, um, the Brooklyn Bail Fund, who started directing folks to donate elsewhere – or um, the Minnesota MFF, um, who continue to accept money, although they did list other nonprofits you could donate to. Like, I, I see both scenarios being totally valid, um, and they're both doing such important work that, quite frankly, if MFF needs to take a year to figure out how to spend that money, great. I mean, yes. of course, I want more of it deployed sooner, but I, I'm not going to pull my funding because they haven't figured out how to spend $35 million. Well, and it goes back to this, we've talked about this before too, this inherent distrust that the public seems to have in nonprofits. And so it's, you know, that they have some kind of ownership in it because they've given their money, Mm -hmm. but then they feel like they can then set their own expectations on the organization with that. Right. And it's just not fair, and it's definitely not realistic. No. Well, and I think, you know, okay, so people making donations right now. I mean, hopefully everybody listening out there is making some sort of donation if you can. I mean, we say it every week, but this is an important time for those of us who have means to be deploying it for these important causes. So when you made that donation, you probably felt good. You probably felt like you were part of the solution. You know, you're fighting this fight along with people. Um, as white people, it's one of the things we've been called on to do right now in this moment. You can't fucking take that back. <laughs> right. Well, and that's the thing. I mean, you have to have enough. First of all, you should have done enough research beforehand and had enough trust in the organization and leadership of the organization that when you give them your donation, that they're going to use it for the best possible good. Yeah. And that goes back to 
again, what Vu talks about in his article, but what we talk about all the time about unrestricting your gift. Mm -hmm. Yep. And so, you know, recognizing that they are the ones that are living in this nonprofit world every day that know the business, you know, better than you do probably if you're just a lay donor that doesn't have any nonprofit experience and that you have to trust to some extent that they're going to be using that. Now, I will say that as that $35 million is spent, I do think it's the responsibility of the organization to report back to the public how it was spent when it's spent. Yeah, of course. Well, and that's, you know, right? one of the key tenets of being a nonprofit, that level of transparency. Exactly. So I'm not saying you're just giving your money and then saying, okay, I'm never going to hear about it again. No, you should absolutely hear about it. But recognize that it's going to take some time to employ that. Mm-hmm. If you raise 25000 sorry, $35 million in the next month, what would your organization do with it? I know, right? No, I'm actually I asking mean, you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, we're really expanding our racial justice work right now. And I just think it's so fascinating because, um, you know, we're – we're talking about right now how we do that within the budget that we have. And if we had $35 million, holy cow. I mean, it really would be about scaling everything. But um, but I love Vu's point in it about using the money to partner with other organizations mm-hmm. and to affect even greater change. Like holistic. Yeah. Right? So my organization, you know, deals with this one sliver. Mm-hmm. You know, and if we can help fund other organizations that are covering the other slivers or pieces of the pie, so to speak, mm-hmm. so that we can really help fund the entire pie. I mean, wow, how how powerful would that be? Amazingly. Mm-hmm. I know. Well, I, I think that was one of my favorite parts where he said that um, you should add to your donation page that the funds will either be used for this purpose or subgranted out. I mean, yeah. that's a scary concept. Absolutely. I mean, can you imagine bringing that to your board and saying, we want to add this to our donation page? They would flip shit. And, Absolutely. like, how amazing would that be? I mean, I just think, like, the, the nonprofit ecosystem, we don't we don't leverage enough. And I know, like, there's so many reasons why. We've got the Hunger Games, yada, yada, yada. But I would love to be like, oh, my God, we, we had this windfall these partner organizations are all going to get a piece of it because we need to lift them up if we're going to do this work. I mean, even just think about like service provision. Okay. You are going to double your service provision overnight. All of your partner organizations are going to need to do more as well because you're not doing any of this work in isolation. And so if you could grant that, oh God, I get excited. I know like this isn't part of my reality whatsoever, but it's just so exciting to think about. That being said, I will fully admit that there are certain funders who ask for that. Like you cannot apply for the grant unless you come as a collaborative. So the whole collective impact, Mm -hmm. which I don't know if we've talked about actually on this podcast. I don't think we, we not really not in depth at all. And I have been, um, I have a little, what's the, what's the, term little PTSD it has left huh PTSD 
Yeah, it's left a really bad taste in my mouth. I fucking hate applying for collective impact grants. I'm just going to say yeah. it. So, so when you talk about that, it's so funny because now if somebody gave me $35 million and said, choose who your partners are and work together to find out how to utilize it, for some reason that feels completely different to me than, it totally hey, is. come together, figure out what you would do if you had this hypothetical amount of money and then spend hours upon hours upon hours writing a grant about it. And then here we're going to give you five grand. Well, and let's be clear, like true collaboration, collaboration that makes real change takes so much work, takes so much relationship development. So much work. It takes a lot of fucking meetings and that yeah. that's time and resources. And so I understand why it also can often feel like the bottom on your priority list. Because you're like, I just got to get this program delivered today. I don't have time to sit in three meetings with Debbie, Sue, and Sally to figure out how we work together better. But if Right, for funding that we may or may not get. Right. And probably won't. And if we do, it probably won't be for an amount that is really going to allow us to do all these things that we're talking right. about doing together. Right. Um. I'm debating how much I want to say about uh, that collective impact process, and I think we're talking about the same funder. Um, well, the funder doesn't exist anymore. Exactly. Yeah. So we are. <laughs> <laughs> name that funder. <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag name that funder. Um, but uh, I want to go back to something you said earlier that made me think of another situation. We didn't even talk about this beforehand, but I think it's interesting. So you you said, you know, part of being a good donor right now is doing enough research so that you trust the organization you're donating to. Well, have you heard of the Black Lives um, Black Lives Matter Foundation? You told me Did about I? that. That is so sc- – and this is the bullshit that gives our sector such a bad rap. It drives me crazy. See, I wish I didn't tell you everything so that you could be more shocked when I tell you something on the podcast. Well, I'm still shocked, so – Okay, so the Black Lives Matter Foundation um, all of a sudden started getting um, an influx in donations lately um, and from big companies like Google. Um, who were, you know, encouraging their employees to give, doing some matches. Yeah, the Black Lives Matter Foundation has jack shit to do with the actual movement. It's some dude in California who created this back in 2015, and it sat pretty much dormant, you know, really not doing much of anything um, until now when it got confused for the people actually doing, you know, the important work. It's essentially just someone who looked out on a domain name early. Yeah. Is it a 501c3? Yeah, it is. But it's not, it has no active programming. No. I, you, I truthfully cannot tell you what they do. I mean, I hear you, public. I know. I hear these stories and I'm outraged too, or the stories where you find out that there's been some sort of embezzling or fraud or whatever happening at a charity. And I know that that's where this distrust is coming from. It, it saddens me, but you know, we hear the same stories coming from the for-profit world oh, exactly. And you're still going to, you know, your big box stores and box chains and, and not having an issue 
putting your money there. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I feel like in the nonprofit world, that's the exception, obviously, and not the rule. So instead of taking all these exceptions and using it as the rule, and now you're you're using that that judgment to create, I don't, I don't know. I just, it drives me crazy. Well, yeah, I, I think what you're saying when a corporate entity, a for-profit entity, has something shitty like that happen, you know, somebody embezzles, they do something really bad, you know, there's that swift initial backlash, and then we forget pretty quickly because we're like, oh, yeah, but we really like their products. Oh, yeah, we we really still want to drive Volkswagens, even though they, like, really tried to fuck us over for a while. So we'll forgive and forget. But for nonprofits, it's like, oh, not only did nonprofit XYZ do this – we are going to distrust them and everybody like them forever. You're like, what the fuck? I know. Whether it's a national organization or a local one. Yeah. Which is so crazy. I mean, these we talk about it all the time. At the end of every episode, we say, give locally. Support your local nonprofits. Because... Those are the ones that are doing the real work in your specific communities, and they're run by people in your community. So get to know them if, like, you have that accessibility. So use it. Exactly. Get get involved. Right? Like, there is nothing that makes me trust a nonprofit more than one where I know them because I'm volunteering there regularly. Because right. I sit on a committee, and so I understand why a decision was made one way or another. Like, I think that's the next level of all of this. All right, great. You've deployed your money. Now get the fuck involved. Right. That's not where right. fuck should have gone in that sentence, but I don't care. <laughs> it's okay. You're heated. I feel your passion. <laughs> <laughs> so, circling back to receiving $35 million overnight... You know, this is just a call to people out there to recognize that, you know, if you had asked me, what would my organization do with $35 million overnight? My organization actually has a CPA. The last place I worked, they didn't. We had a bookkeeper. We didn't even have a CPA on staff. So recognize that what you were, you know, to your point, that the infrastructure probably is not there mm-hmm. to be handling that level of cash yeah. Well, I, that quickly. I think that's actually another really good point for donors and, and something I've had to check myself on too, right? Like as a fundraising consultant, the minute I get an appeal letter in the mail, I'm like circling, oh, wouldn't have done this, should have done this better over here. And I do that for everything, including where I donate. And I've had to really step back and check myself and be like, I... Okay, so they didn't send me an acknowledgement letter for three months. You know what? They're still using the money. They're doing good work. I'm not going to give a shit about that. And I think like that's just where we all need to be. Of course, yes, we would love to be stewarded. We would love to feel good and immediately be thanked by these nonprofits. But they are in the thick of it right now. So we're going to give them some grace. And yeah. just know that they're using your money to do the good work that you intended them to do with it. Yeah. Exactly. And don't forget that we get audited every year. I mean, have we said that? Most. Yeah, I guess not every single one, but of a certain size. Mm -hmm. So, 
I mean, it's not as if we're, it's the wild, wild west. I don't even know if that's something to say as we live in the wild, wild west. I don't even know what that means. Um, Where, you know, we're creating our own rules. Right. You know, we still have tax laws (laughs) that we're abiding by. So it's not like they're just taking that $35 million, putting it in their pockets and going home. But, you know, maybe they can give like some bonuses and... Maybe a nice staff wow, lunch that be nice? would be nice. <laughs> Some hummus. <laughs> little like <laughs> two kinds of hummus. Let's just go all out this time. Uh, oh my gosh. That's crazy. That's crazy. I did think as I was reading that article of like all the little things I've said no to or I've had to cut or I like wish we could have spent money on and just having this period of being like, yes, yes to everything. You want a different right. pen than Sally does? Yeah, you get your own fucking pens. <laughs> We're going to get people in here to do ergonomics assessments. Oh, We're going to yes. hook you up with like desks and the right chairs and no more neck aches. We're going to give everybody blue blockers. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh. To those nonprofits out there who are currently getting these huge influxes of donation, donations. Congratulations. Seriously. I mean, you're getting that money because you are doing really fucking important work right now. And we are so thrilled for you that people are finally recognizing it and stepping up. Absolutely. Absolutely. And for those of you that are giving the donations, keep on giving, Keep it up. spread the love, look at, look for other organizations that are doing the hard work as well and, and spread it around. Yeah. It is, it is really inspiring to see so many people stepping into philanthropy who have never done that before. It's just awesome. Yeah. I wish we could talk to one of them. Somebody who has never given until now. Yeah. So if you're out there, hit us up. I'd love to hear what inspired it. I I really like the concept that somebody who has never been philanthropic is somehow listening to our podcast. You never know. I mean, I just assume the world's listening to our podcast, but... They probably... I mean, Vu did retweet me today, so by the time this airs, the entire world will be listening. Speaking of viral. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, if they do want to get in touch with us, because they happened upon our lovely podcast now that they're into philanthropy, where can they reach us? They can email us, nonprofitreframe at gmail.com. Great place to drop any questions you might have. Um, But really, we love the stories. Please keep sending us the stories. Um, We got an email a couple weeks ago, had me on the floor laughing so hard. So we love hearing that shit. Um, And you can also follow us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, at Nonprofit Reframe. Wonderful. And as always, if you are in a position right now where you have the capacity, do your research, look into your local nonprofits, what is calling to you, um, you know, which mission is really calling to you and get to know them, get to know, look at their bios, look at their website. Don't judge them if the website's not completely up to date. Please don't. No. Yeah, please don't. Um, But do your research and then give and give generously. Thanks, everybody. We would like to thank our sponsors. Mission Launch is a Colorado-based nonprofit consulting firm focusing on fundraising and board governance. You can learn more at missionlaunchco.com. And Jake Walker Music, who provides our theme music. You can find him at jakewalkermusic.org. Thank you so much.